0: Paul talks here of three kinds of people the first one is the natural man and from this scripture we see that the natural man is one who is unregenerate and devoid of the spirit he's no appreciation of the gospel and he's not yet born again then there's the spiritual man The spiritual man is regenerate and possesses spiritual maturity, and this is seen in his freedom from sectarian strife, by that I mean denominational differences. He knows how to get along with other people in the church, and what's more, he's willing to do whatever is needed in order to be at peace with them. He's not narrow-minded, he's willing to listen, he's teachable and mouldable, he's filled with the truth. He walks in integrity, and he keeps his commitments. Because he loves the Lord, he desires excellence in everything he does. The law of love rules his life, and he displays the fruit of the Spirit. The natural man and the carnal man do not understand this man. So now we come to the carnal man. Now this one is regenerate, but he's living much like an unregenerate. He is a believer with childish ways. And this is demonstrated in jealousy and a sectarian spirit. He can't get along with others in a different church from his own. He's an immature Christian who lives for the opinion of people rather than for the opinion of Jesus. He will be very aware of what people think about him and governed more by their opinions of him and his feelings rather than what the Bible says. He is prone to take offence. He displays fits of jealousy, envy, and anger, and frequently and not unoccasionally starts or participates in dissension and division. In other words, he is inclined to gossip, reporting to others what another has said, so he often brings division instead of unity the most significant thing about this man is that he is ruled by his emotions and his self-will it's difficult to get him to pray about anything as he thinks he can take care of everything but major issues by himself he might just involve god in these he's led by his feelings rather than prayer and you may hear something like excuse me i'm drawn towards a certain woman and i believe she's the one i should marry In reality he's being emotionally and physically attracted to this lady and it has nothing to do with the will of God at all because he wouldn't seek the Lord for his opinion for fear it differed from what he wanted. There's a lot of believers like this. When you ask them to pray they won't pray because they've got this deep-seated suspicion that what they want to do doesn't actually line up with what God wants and so they won't go to Him. Hebrews 5.11 here to six three. We have much to say about this but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that leads to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. So that the writer to the Hebrews has to go back to basics with them. they would become lazy and they would stopped growing. As I said before, if you're still believing what you believed last year and moving in that, you're possibly quite probably backslidden. And by that I mean that if you are a a believer who believed at the age of seven years and you haven't actually changed your belief system you have a very different kind of image of God than that which you should have if you're in your 40s. That is the sort of hidden backsliding that can go on. We need to be pressing into God all the time. He is absolutely infinite. We will never come to the end of Him. So if we've got him locked into little Jesus meek and mild in a manger, I think we need something to change in our mindset because he's coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and wearing a robe dipped in blood. Somewhere there's got to be a transition in our thinking. In the spiritual life we must always be growing. Stagnation, stopping means death. If we cut the life source, our blood, off to a part of our body, first of all it will go numb and you won't feel it and then eventually it will actually blacken and drop off. So stopping means death for us spiritually. We either go forward or we start sliding back. And these people that Paul, or whoever the writers of the Hebrews was, couldn't understand and couldn't take strong teaching because they were still babies. Talk to them about the crucified life, sacrifice, obedience, taking responsibility for their own actions, being delivered from blaming others for their problems, forgiving others and blessing their enemies. Too hard! Give me milk! They did not know who they were in Christ or how much they were loved. Solid food is for those who have trained their senses to discern. Training our senses includes training ourselves not to be led by our emotions. These people here couldn't get past the foundational things. Foundations are meant to be built on. Repentance is still an issue for some people, changing their mind, changing their mind. Forgiveness is still an issue for some. Offence is yet another issue. And abandoning good works is yet another issue for other believers. That which seems good in the eyes of man is not good in the eyes of God. God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Carnal believers cater to their feelings. They base their decisions on what feels good and what they think is good. So let's look now at some specific emotions. Emotions that cause trouble. Anger is one. No one enjoys being around someone who is prickly and quick-tempered. We should not have to walk around each other on eggshells for fear of another's outbursts. So we need to be very careful about allowing the emotion of anger to control us or others. Anger won't disappear from our lives. We must learn how to manage it. If you're anything like me it appears from nowhere and disappears just as quickly but I'm learning to catch it before it rises up. I'm exerting control over my soul and starving it in that area. I have to speak firmly to myself to get control before I speak. And a very good rule of life is never to speak unless you speak from a place of peace. We are so often liable to give people a piece of our mind, which is not very helpful, because the peace we usually give them, it's P-I-E-C-E incidentally, is usually unrenewed. We're all meant to bring a peace but not that peace, thanks very much. Taking offence, getting and staying angry, and living in unforgiveness simply shows our immaturity. We must start forgiving, releasing and going on. When you hold someone in unforgiveness, you are the one who suffers, not them. You are in Satan's territory and he loves it. Lunch is being served and you are on the menu. He can tweak you with a memory of the offence any times he likes and you will live in confusion, torment and misery with constant replays. We nurse it, curse it and sure enough it grows as we used to say. We never bury these things dead. We bury them alive and they come back to haunt us. Forgive. Leave the outcome to God and let him vindicate you. If you fight your own corner he cannot and will not fight for you. You become an amateur providence and get in his way. So whatever it is for your own good, let it go. Leave it to him. This isn't my idea, actually. Look at the scripture. Colossians 3.13. And this is in the King James Version. Sometimes there's nothing other than King Jimmy will do it. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. The reason is beloved. we cannot stay angry, offended, bitter, resentful or unforgiving. <coughs> oh, I beg your pardon. And expect to be blessed, enjoy life, stay healthy, experience freedom. We are shooting ourselves in the foot. In fact, all these negative emotions have an effect on our physical, emotional and spiritual welfare. This is one of the spiritual rules that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Negative emotions inside you, festering and, and going round and round in your system, will eventually have a physical effect. They will show on your physical body by sickness, illness and disease. So, you remember, when we studied the rule of life, the rule by which we live, we each asked the Lord what he wanted us to be living by right now. What rule was it? How many of you remember the rule that it was? Mine, um, uh, currently, is, is always everything for an audience of one. If I please him, whether other people are pleased or not, really is immaterial. I love them, I work to excellence, I seek to please him and live in his smile. So that's my rule of life. No defence, no attack was another one of the rules of life that I lived with and still do. Honesty, integrity and transparency, what you see is what you get. I seek to hide nothing. How can I? I'm exposed before the eyes of the one with whom I have to do what is the point of trying to hide anything so if you don't know what i'm talking about um get the cd's and listen to the rule of life it was one in the spiritual warfare series we should be known for our uprightness our honesty and our integrity our peace not our passivity and our attitude towards life and others which should be loving and forbearing We should not be rash in decision-making or rash with our mouths. If we are, we're living in our soul and not in our spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 2 in the King James With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, for bearing with one another in love. This is all part of the ongoing process of sanctification in our lives, making us like Jesus, transforming us into his image. So the next thing, and you may identify with this, is the impatient and hasty spirit. Proverbs twenty-one five says this, The thoughts of the steadily diligent tend only to plenteousness, but everyone who is impatient and hasty hastens only to want. There is indeed a great danger in being impulsive, impatient and hasty as this proverb shows us. Catering to impulses brings eventual destruction or want and it is a work of the flesh within us. The spirit is never hasty. Impulse buying, speaking impulsively, precipitate decisions, impulse eating, add your own, anything done on impulse we'll find the law of sowing and reaping coming into action swiftly. We need to be responders not reactors. Thermostats not thermometers. We may on impulse agree to do something which we subsequently realize is unwise but we're stuck with the decision. Anything done on impulse will not yield good fruit. Self-government is something we must all continually cultivate. It doesn't come naturally to us. To be kind, gentle, slow to anger, responsive rather than reactive, forgiving. All these things are what the Holy Spirit is working within us to displace in order that the life of Jesus may shine through. The work of the Spirit within is a work of displacement he must increase we must decrease so wherever you are in the process accept that you aren't yet where you will be but you are on your way and determine to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in your life make it easy for him proverbs twenty nine twenty says this do you see a man who is hasty in his words there is more hope for a self-confident fool than for him A man who is hasty speaks out of his emotion and lacks wisdom. Two ears, one mouth. Listen twice as much as we speak. Always a good rule of life. Again, using the story of the prodigal son, his father welcomed him back, but the fact was he had wasted his inheritance. And the hasty and impatient person will always lose out in the end. He squandered it, didn't he? Father was always willing to take him back, but he squandered his inheritance. Self-pity. Ugh. The next emotion is self-pity. And you can be pitiful or powerful, and you get to choose. I'm serious as a heart attack, beloved. You get to choose. You cannot be both. You cannot have the nana and the sympathy and be powerful. You've got to do violence to yourself in this area. No pity parties. John 5 1-8 in the New American Standard Bible. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticoes. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man who had been ill for thirty-eight years was there. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Pick up your pallet and walk. This crippled man felt sorry for himself, Jesus told him, get up. Some of us need to get a little firmer with ourselves, remembering that we cannot be both pitiful and powerful at the same time. Is Jesus saying to you, get up? So, let's quickly look at the enemy's game plan in all of this because he is not silent or not moving while all this is going on. He has three main thrusts, penetration, demoralisation and subversion. And all three of these are his tools to get you to do one thing, and that is give up. He penetrates your thinking and works on your emotions in order to subvert your will. This is why it is so important that your will is put into the hands of God. The enemy works to destabilize you and challenge what you believe. He threatens, lies, undermines and sabotages your effectiveness in the Kingdom. That's his job. That's his game plan. To knock you out of the race and he isn't fussy how he does it. And what's more, he's allowed, he's allowed to do these things in order that you might stand and be aware and stand tall and strong in what you believe and what you know and who you know. But once he's got you agreeing with him, he's using your mind now, he moves in to subvert your will into agreement with his. And once you do that, you are effectively sidelined and out of the race. All this takes place in that little powerhouse called your mind, which is part of your soul. Unless we can effectively combat the lures of the enemy, we will be penetrated by his negativity and distortion of the truth. Then we are so undermined, depressed, discouraged and finally so demoralized we give up. When something happens to us involving others which makes people give up on God, I question whether that person ever had a deep relationship with the Lord in the first place. We should not be so easily captivated by the enemy's lies. If we're building on a firm foundation, it shouldn't happen beloved. If we truly have a relationship with Jesus, it is to him we will fly. Never, ever, ever let what happens between you and other people push you away from your source, which is God. Never let the fall of a leader you have respected push you away from God. Do not measure God by man's performance. Man is not God. He may not even be a good representative of God. Don't let it happen, beloved. I know a number of people who are now not walking closely with the Lord because something happened in their church that disillusioned them and they turned away, straight into the arms of the enemy, derailed, sidelined and out of the race. Their focus was wrong, their eyes were on the church and the leadership and when that fell apart and splintered, they lost their faith. They had it in the wrong place. So taking captive those wayward thoughts is a matter of life or death for us. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We have to see things from God's perspective. And Romans twelve one and 2, familiar scripture puts it so plainly, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, The psalmist talked to himself. He reminded himself of past victories, of God's faithfulness, and he meditated on God's word until he rose up in faith and determination. Here was a man pursued by someone who sought to kill him out of jealous rage, but he never turned away from God, only towards him. And you can see this in Psalm 40, 1-3. Psalm 42 Five to eight psalm 143, 3 to seven, and verse ten, Elijah, after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, is tired and emotionally, physically, and spiritually drained, he goes into a fit of depression. Jezebel's letter has penetrated his defences, one kings nineteen, one to three, in the n I v Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Here is God's man of power for the hour, running for his life. An example of penetration. 1 Kings 19 verse 4 in the New American Standard Bible. Elijah now, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Demoralisation and depression set in rapidly. What's the Lord's response to Elijah? 1 Kings 19.9 What are you doing here Elijah? Good question. I'm the only one left. And a little bit later we find in 1 Kings 19.15 Go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you've arrived you shall anoint O oh, king over Aram. Get on with the job Elijah, don't sit here having a pity party. One thing you will notice however that the Lord ensured that physically Elijah was catered for and rested. He sent an angel to put food by his head and then Elijah rested again. Physically he was restored by this But emotionally and spiritually he was still down a hole. So God says, come on, let's get this show on the road, Elijah. The lesson for us in this is that we need to take proper food and rest. Or there's no help of emotional and spiritual stability. And don't give up on something that God hasn't finished with. If you're going to be an overcomer, you have to have something to overcome, as Elijah found out. So penetration, demoralisation, and subversion. Watch out for these three. Ungoverned desires. I just want to look for a moment at desires, and specifically ungoverned desires, inflamed desires, that war in our person from time to time, like when we're in the sales, and we see that and think what a bargain it is, even if we haven't got the money. We've already seen James' view. He tells us that ungoverned desire creates war within us because we have unrealistic expectations of ourselves and and others and we're never at rest. James 3 verse 16 to to chapter 4 verse 3 For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you you want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. and When you do ask you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And 1 Timothy six. 6 but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment is inward sufficiency. We are deeply satisfied, so we do not long for something more or something different. It's a disposition of the mind which enables us to rule our desires and confine our wants to the measure of what God has provided without murmuring or complaining. It's an abiding satisfaction with what we already have, this applies not only to things but to relationships, occupations and other aspects of life. Discontent on the other hand is a restless desire for something other than that which we currently have. I'm not speaking here of a divine dissatisfaction with where we are in our Christian walk. That's healthy to provoke us to pressing on. What I mean here is a low-grade desire to possess something that belongs to someone else, a coveting. It's one of the giants we must face as we come into our promised land, the land of our inheritance. The word in Greek is pleonexia, meaning to covet, desire, want, crave, yearn, hanker after, and it is always used in a negative sense. It's spelled P-L-E-O-N-E-X-I-A, pleonexia. Put simply, it's the desire to have more, receive more, want more, often with reference to power as well as property. Can mean a desire to outdo others, to be superior, to take precedence or excel at the expense of another. Another interpretation or way of looking at it is it's a sense of taking advantage of others, violating others, or greedily desiring things and asserting oneself. Not a pretty word. When we are discontent, we are disgruntled, restless and unhappy. And we tend to cling to what we have. In 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul talks about those who won't inherit the kingdom. This is not to do with salvation. This is inheritance of the kingdom. And he puts covetousness in the same category with immorality. Verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, then you would have to go out of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 6.10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We need to see where the source of our restlessness to have more lies so we can be alert to the dangers all around us. One significant source of the pervading discontent in society is the media. We are pressured to be dissatisfied with who we are and what we have by the advertising of how we should look and what we should wear and which car we should drive. Advertising intentionally flames our, inflames our desires. Everything is designed to make us discontent. All three of Jesus' temptations were designed to awaken a desire for what was being offered, if you're the Son of God. It's quite interesting to note that while he resisted the temptation to turn stones into bread for himself, he later used his miraculous power to feed the 5,000. That is desire in its rightful place. The desire to do good to others. One of the reasons we discover self-hatred in the body of Christ so much is that we are heavily influenced by the media. And at back of the media is Satan, your arch-enemy who seeks to kill, to steal and destroy everything you are and have. So if you have a problem today with not liking yourself very much just trace it back to why. You might find that it is because you are surrounded with advertising that tells you to be acceptable you have to look like this obtain that or drive the other. It's a matter about which you need to make confession. Come into agreement with God who says you you are and listen to no longer sorry I'll say that again. Come into agreement with who God says you are and listen no longer to the devil's lies about you or believe them. It's worth taking a look at it's like surround sound, it's all around us, pervading the very atmosphere. And it leads to us being dissatisfied with who we are, where we are, how we look. Little realising that we are being penetrated, demoralised and on our way to having our will subverted to do the work of the enemy. And this is not so difficult for him as you might think. Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy two twenty four to 26 says this. The Lord's bond-servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So the role, one of the roles of leadership is to point out to you where you are being taken captive by the devil to do his will. That is total subversion, beloved, where he has got you doing his dirty work for him. Satan seeks by any means to capture you in order that you might do his will. This whole issue of desire is a great wide great deal wider than just possessions or position. It encompasses the desire for acceptance and approval which leads to fear of man and acute people-pleasing. It might even be an inflamed desire for a religious experience, wanting the Lord to meet us in a particular way instead of the way in which he is determined, or a desire for your spouse to love you in the way you desire to be loved, his or her failure to do so being interpreted as a lack of love. It goes on and on. Even, dare I say, those seeking spiritual perfection within themselves, they'll find that a painful and futile search. Discontented people with inflamed desires find themselves in a continual search for the perfect church with the perfect group of people attending it. They mistakenly believe that finding such perfection is all they need to be content. The problem is not the imperfection of their surroundings. Problem is their own discontent. What happens is that we cannot be happy until we have attained our desire. And until this is fulfilled, we're postponing our joy and our contentment. I'll be happy when this happens. You'll be happy when I shut up, as Graham Cook would say. Nothing can be crueler than living with unfulfilled expectations that we assume came from God. It is so serious. Sometimes the things that we have expectations for and believe that God gave us were not birthed in Him at all. I once read that a counselling centre said that many of their clients were trapped in false prophetic words that had created totally unfulfilled expectations. What's the sum of this? It's seeking to go our own way rather than allowing God to lead and guide us. Simple as that. Godliness with contentment is great gain, surely when our desires are, are his desires we have the mind of Christ when our will is tuned to his will and wishes we have owned him as our Lord when our heart and emotions are ruled governed and determined by his heart and emotions the result is uncorrupted love which results in contentment Ephesians six twenty three. peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A benediction, peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to two words, consecration and dedication. For those of you who still practice tithing, your tithe is set apart for God. It's dedicated monies. You don't touch it. It belongs to God. The principle is the same with our hearts. Once we decide on dedication and consecration of our heart to Him, it belongs to Him. God has a good plan for our lives. He loves us with an absolutely outrageous love. But if we don't believe this, we won't enjoy it, we won't receive it, and we will balk at the words consecration and dedication. Or if we do actually get so far as to consecrate or dedicate ourselves, it will be through gritted teeth and somewhat of a martyr complex, because we feel we're in some way being forced into this against our better judgment, And we will probably end up bitter and resentful. Rather like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. We will not understand grace and will resent those who live in the love, grace and forgiveness of God. Because they seem to get away with everything. And we just do not understand the outrageous goodness and love of the father. What I just said is a description of someone with a poverty spirit. Poverty is not just about money beloved. Children who are loved powerfully never worry. They have a glorious complacency. Father is in control and they are preoccupied with Jesus. There was no resistance in Jesus so the Holy Spirit was able to come to him as a dove. When he comes to us the greater the resistance in us the more we are likely to experience the Holy Spirit's working in us as fire and something which causes us continuous conflict. Conflict should not be a way of life, though there will likely be short skirmishes as your will is put under the benevolent control of the Holy Spirit. Our problem always is we've no idea of the Father's outrageous love towards us. If the Lord wills in the new year, we will be exploring the magnitude of his love towards us and with open hearts will be able to receive it. God is a giver, not a withholder. And I want to reach the place where I live with such a brilliant idea of God that I'm actually able to portray it to those around me. A perfect heart towards God then is a surrendered heart. One that has laid down its own wishes and desires, and has given its desires to God for him to work out what he knows best. The will is given into his hands, the desires are given into his hands, and we simply wait to see how he works things out. A surrendered will knows that God loves us, and he has nothing but good intentions towards us. Whilst your will is not surrendered, you'll be constantly in conflict with what the Holy Spirit desires to do in your life, because there are always two wills at work, and yours wants to be in control. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you, energising and creating in you the power and desire, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. So if you are exerting or exercising your will contrary to the will of God in your life, you will experience constant conflict and very little victorious living. Stubbornness is not a fruit of the Spirit. When we consecrate or dedicate something to God, we set it aside for His use, or we give it over to Him to use at his disposal, and we can't surrender our hearts and wills without surrendering our lives again romans one twelve one and two says it I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice. Holy, devoted, consecrated and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external, superficial customs but be transformed, metamorphosed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in His sight for you. This passage encapsulates what we've been speaking about so far. We dedicate our bodies, all our members and faculties, in order that we may prove what God's will is, his good, acceptable and perfect will for our lives. That's a decisive dedication, a decision that defines you, which we spoke about at the beginning, that today may be the day that you decide that every day you will commit your body to Him as in Romans twelve one and 2. That is a decisive dedication. Climbing up on the altar. It's actually a prayer that I pray almost every day. Committing my life, giving my heart and all my desires into His hands in order that he may sanctify them, and if he thinks fit, give them back to me in due time. I can do this because I trust him, simply that. I trust him to know what is best for me. There's the story of the little girl in, I think it was probably around the 18th century, and she was sick, and her father was a physician. He came to her and asked, Daughter, would you like me to bleed you? That was something they frequently did in those days, as you know. And her trusting response was, Whatever you think best, Father. And all the time he performed this procedure, she kept her eyes steadfastly upon him. She never looked at what he was doing. She kept her eyes on his face, trustingly. She trusted him even though what he was doing was painful and she didn't understand. She allowed him to know best and submitted to him. It always makes me think of the father when I think of that little tale. We don't understand much of what happens. Maybe we don't understand anything, but we trust him and we keep our eyes upon him. We don't understand why he permits some things and forbids others. All we do know is that everything he does with us is prompted by his outrageous love for us. So it must be good. And it must be right. And we cannot surrender our lives, our hearts, without surrendering our lives. If we surrender our lives, we surrender our emotions to his control. And again, James is the key. James one twenty two. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Be not hearers of the Word, but doers. Finally, love God and do as you please, said Augustine. If your motive for what you do is the agape love of God, You have only one desire, and that is to please him and to do his will. Go in peace, beloved, and be transformed into his likeness. I have one message. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. It's been quite a long haul, but it can be life-changing if you will do the word as well as listen to it. God bless you.